Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3, verse 9, and we're going to read down to verse 26. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. And Paul says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen. So justification is a word that you'll find uh, used widely in the New Testament, uh, particularly in the letters of Paul. And what we're going to look at is what the Bible says about uh, justification. And it's really it's such an important doctrine. It is central to the Christian faith. It is this doctrine which Martin Luther, uh, so we sang one of his hymns at the beginning of the service, uh, Martin, the great Martin Luther, uh, it's, he said of this doctrine, uh, this is the article uh, by which the church stands or falls. It is the article by which the church stands or falls. In other words, without believing in it and without preaching about it, the church will simply uh, shrivel up and die. And uh, I think there's ample evidence of that uh, all across the world, and especially in this country. Uh, Churches that don't believe this doctrine of justification tend to shrivel up and, and wither on the vine, as it were. Uh, So it's one of these uh, foundational teachings of the Bible, uh, teachings of the gospel. So let's get to the point. What what is it? What are we talking about? What is is justification? Uh, It's a big word. Well, to put it at its simplest, let me quote uh, James Buchanan, uh, a 19th century Scottish, has to be Scottish, Scottish theologian uh, who wrote this. He wrote a very thick book on it, but he, the, the definition is very simple. Uh, he says this, justification is a legal or forensic term and is used in scripture 
to denote the acceptance of anyone as righteous in the sight of God. A legal term used in scripture to denote the acceptance of anyone as righteous in the sight of God. Now, it doesn't say everything about justification and how it happens. We'll come to that later. But what it is, is acceptance with, uh, of anyone as righteous in the sight of God. So let me just tease that out um, a little bit. What we're talking about is how God sees someone with his own eyes, as it were. And what God sees in a justified person is a person who is righteous. He's received as righteous. Now that's an idea uh, that immediately if you're thinking about the state of humankind, uh, you'll realize presents something of a problem for everybody. Because what the Bible says about everybody, uh, we've read some of it in the passage that we read in Romans chapter 3, but earlier on in chapter 1, uh, Paul writes at Romans 1.18, he says, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, uh, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, uh, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Uh, it's one of the great truths about human beings as they have the truth uh, kind of built into them there's a degree of truth that they know uh, but one, one of the things about sinful human beings, unrighteous human beings is they suppress the truth, they press it down, they want to ignore it, they want to deny it whatever they want to do uh, as long as they don't have to uh, accept the way things uh, God sees things but this is all part of the fruit of unrighteousness that all human beings are unrighteous before God and therefore Paul says, uh, in the passage that we read in, in chapter 3, verse 10, uh, none is righteous, no, not one. Nobody is righteous. And that's a problem, isn't it? Uh, God needs to see us as righteous, and yet everybody is not righteous. Um, everybody needs to be justified, but no one in themselves is Justified, being justified and being righteous are the same thing. Being, being considered righteous. So that, that dilemma of the human condition is something that became clear to Martin Luther in the 16th, early 16th century. In the early part of Martin Luther's life as a monk, you know, he was trying to teach the Bible to other people. And uh, he was trying to be faithful uh, to the teaching of the Bible. But all he could see was the fact that God was utterly holy and pure and good. And he is the God who set his commandments for human beings to obey. But he recognized that all human beings failed, and him especially. He felt his own need before God, that he was a failure in terms of keeping the law of God and his own holiness. And so, as an unholy, unrighteous man, he was constantly before God. In fact, he began to say that he, he hated God because of this in, that, in those days. He was trying to be faithful, but he couldn't understand how somebody could be righteous before a holy God like this. 
And no matter how he tried, he could never be righteous enough. Uh, All his past sins uh, couldn't be undone. And actually he kept on sinning. He would spend hours in the confessional, as they used to have it in those days in the Roman Catholic Church. He'd spend hours in the confessional. But he would never get to the end of all his sins. Because he kept thinking of more. There's one story of him spending six hours with von Stuppitz, his, his mentor, uh, confessing his sins in the confessional box. And as soon as he walked out, he remembered another sin and he had to come back. Until von Stuppitz said to him, you need to just go home. <laughs> you see, uh, you can see the, the problem, can't you? Well, of course, it's only as... as Martin Luther began to pay attention to the coming of Jesus Christ and the identity of Jesus Christ, that he saw him as God's coming flesh. But then as he began to look at the cross and what was happening on the cross, he began to see that actually God was a God of mercy, that though he was utterly holy and everyone is unrighteous before him, he could see that in the cross... God was dealing with sin. And that God was therefore a God of mercy as well as holiness. And that through Christ somehow our sins could be dealt with. And that opened up for him this rich seam of teaching. That he could mine as it were in the scriptures. You know it's kind of amazing to me that somebody could be a teacher of the scripture. And miss the central point of the way of salvation. This doctrine of justification. So many people go to church and they have no idea about this doctrine of justification. How somebody gets right with God. How somebody can be accepted in God's sight as righteous. How can that happen? They miss it because they're always thinking about, they seem to go straight to the moral content. Let's do this and do this and do this. Maybe I can please God that way. And God will be pleased with me and accept me. But actually there's something prior to uh, good works. You need to be accepted first. Is righteous in his sight. How can you do that? So justification, therefore, is such an important doctrine, which we'll come to. Um, And we're going to consider it in in this series of what happens when somebody becomes a Christian. Um, What we've looked at so far is a number of steps that take place, uh, in a sense, within the Christian uh, that changes that person. Uh, So we've looked at the call of God, how God calls people to himself, how he effectively or effectually calls people. When he does it, um, it it is received and it uh, is believed, the effectual call of God. Then we've looked at regeneration, how somebody is born again by the Spirit of God or raised to life or made a new creature. Uh, We've looked, these are wonderful truths that somebody becomes alive in Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, we've looked at faith. What is faith? Where does it come from? It comes from heaven. Um, This is what happens to somebody uh, who is newly born of the Spirit of God. They believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that they never could before. And it's a compelling belief. They have that sense of compulsion. I cannot do anything else but believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then fourthly, last week we looked at repentance. Uh, And that's a God-granted uh, response of first of all disgust at your own sin you see, begin to see your sin as God sees your sin not just because you 
you're found out and you, you realize the consequences of your sin. But actually you see how God sees your sin. You actually hate it. You begin to hate it yourself. That's, that's the start of repentance. And then you begin to, to mortify sin. You begin to change your life you know, by God's grace uh, in repentance. And uh, this is a God-given grace that he works into your life. So those four things we've looked at so far. And these are all things that happen within us, if you like. Uh, what we're going to now begin to deal with are some things that happen outside of us uh, or for us. Um, and, and so we come to justification. Um, and in, in a sense, our, our experience of justification is really only to do with the joy of knowing that it's true. Um, justification takes place, as it were, in the courts of heaven. Not actually within us. Um, so, uh, but we experience the joy of it. So as we turn to, to Romans chapter 3, um, uh, I want to look at verses 21 to 26. And it's here that Paul begins to unfold for us uh, this doctrine of justification. And it goes on for quite, quite a number of verses, actually, m- more than the ones we read. Um, but I want to begin with uh, where, God be- where Paul begins. And that is with this question of the righteousness of God. Because that's where he starts in verse 21. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And uh, here God displays his righteousness. Uh, what does... What does his righteousness mean here? Uh, He doesn't mean his absolute holiness. Because actually that's the problem for us, isn't it? His holiness and our unrighteousness is a problem. Rather what we need to look for in this righteousness of God is the fact that his righteousness is actually a solution to our problem. That's why he says, but... You know, all this bad sin stuff that's happening, uh, verses 9 to 20. Uh, but our righteousness from God is revealed. Uh, so it's a, it's a solution to the problem, not a problem itself. Uh, so what does it mean? What does this righteousness of God mean? Well, a couple of things it can mean. Um, first is how the phrase is used in the Old Testament. Um, there is the righteousness of God that is often equivalent to God's saving activity. Uh, so, for example, Isaiah 46.13, I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. Uh, it says in the ESV, I will put my salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. So here we have uh, God's righteousness and his saving work as uh, equivalents, uh, interchangeable terms almost, uh, in, in that verse. And these two things are connected, of course, salvation and righteousness, because God has promised salvation uh, all through the scriptures, and it is righteous for him to keep his promises. So keeping his promises is an act of righteousness. It's a display of his righteousness. But there's a second thing that the righteousness of God can mean, uh, for, uh, uh, can mean and that's that a righteousness that God provides for us 
Not only does he ha- is he righteous himself, but he is able to give a righteousness to uh, others. Um, and I, I want you to just soak yourself in the significance of that. You're not righteous. I'm not righteous by myself. But somehow God is able to make over to you or me, as we are faith in Jesus Christ, uh, a righteousness that's not our own. He is able to make us righteousness. And it's provided by God. That's, that all follows, uh, by the way, out of the, the, the syntax, the, 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 word, the sentence structure, the righteousness of God, um, uh, the justifying of God. How does he do that? So, it, the righteousness of God means both of those things. Uh, God's saving activity and making over to us a righteousness that we cannot have by ourselves. Uh, and in doing that, he's able to deal with the, the debts of our sin, the problem of our sin. Now, to understand how this righteousness becomes ours, I want, I want to describe it under three main qualifications. Qualifiers. Uh, the first is that this righteousness comes by grace alone. The second is, it comes in Christ alone. And you can probably guess the third one. It comes through faith alone. One of the great, great solas of the, the Reformation. But grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. First of all, it's by grace alone. And if you look at verse 23, uh, it says this. Uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Paul is just making the point here uh, that the predicament that all human beings have, that it's not just as they've sinned, and in doing so they have fallen short of the glory of God, that the image of God is marred and defaced, and so they fall well short of what God intends for us uh, in, in our lives. And, uh, and so left to ourselves, we are not justified before God. We are unrighteous before God. But verse 24, he goes on to say, they are justified by his grace as a gift. It is an amazing thing. So who's, who's grace? God's grace. God's grace. What do we mean by grace? What do we mean? We mean favor. How God favors you. He looks upon you with a smile, to put it kind of more concretely. When you're the object of God, he smiles upon you, of the favor of God, he smiles upon you as one of his. And it's rather like, you know, as parents, we, we, we may love all children, but we especially love our own children. And that's right and good, isn't it? It would be a problem if you didn't love your child as much as, you, you know, as other children. But... Uh, he favors his own people, his own children. And they become the, the special object of his, his attention and concern and love. So it's by the favor of God, the, the grace of God. Now this is uh, something else we need to say about this. This is unmerited grace. So uh, what that means is you can't earn it. You can't do anything to get it. You can't take a class and get a qualification in the grace of God. Uh, you can't work for it. You cannot uh, receive God's favor as a reward for all that you have done. You can't. 
hope nobody believes that here in this room. You cannot earn God's grace. You don't go on some special quest to show that you are worthy. Like all, all these films <laughs> like to show you who is worthy to take this quest. <laughs> this sort of thing. No, none of you are able to do it. It's grace, it's a gift, free, gratis, no payment required. And it's offered and given simply because God wants to give it. Not because you've done something to deserve it. I hope you really understand that. You need to be grounded in the grace of God. And understand that your standing before God is all of grace. And then the last thing to say is that uh, this unmerited grace goes to people who deserve judgment. Not just... It's not grace just to the undeserving, but to the ill-deserving. You deserve ill from God. You deserve his judgment. I deserve his judgment. We all deserve it. And that's the argument that Paul has been making in chapters 1 to 3. We all deserve his judgment. No one is righteous. The wrath of God is being revealed against unrighteousness, resulting in that final judgment. But the grace of God covers all of that. Deals with it. And we'll see how in a minute. So that now in his grace, God looks upon sinners who fall short of his glory and he still smiles upon them. He comes by grace and forgives them and accepts them. So oh the grace of God. Oh the majestic, wonderful grace of God. And doesn't it strike you as the most precious of gifts? To be under the smile of God. To have been received by him. By grace. We rest in his grace. In a world that's so corrupt and broken. And I'm part of that corruption. In a world that's left itself. For which there is no light at the end of the tunnel. Only darkness. How not it amazing that God would come and show the light of his grace upon us. Individually as, as a church. Friends I want to say to you that you will only really grasp this. As you grasp the true nature of your condition, that you realize that you are a sinner deserving of his judgment. And if you don't really believe that you deserve judgment, then you'll never appreciate just how priceless the gift is. And if you think that somehow you are deserving, and that you believe that somehow you're, you know, you're pretty good, um, uh, you just need a little top-up of grace from God. To, to make you acceptable to him. And there's some people like that. Many people in churches like that. I think they just need a top up. They're basically good. But they need a top up from God somehow. To make them acceptable. Finally and completely acceptable to God. Then you will never truly grasp the grace of God. If that's how you think. You see the righteousness of God comes to us by grace alone. His grace. Secondly it comes through Christ alone. It comes through Christ alone. Um, and, God, and Paul goes on in, in verse 24. It comes by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And Paul is saying here that this grace is possible wholly and exclusively because of Jesus Christ and what he achieved 2,000 years ago. So what did he achieve? Well, there's two big ideas 
in verses in verse 25. Number one, he is a propitiation for our sins. Uh, you probably no idea what propitiation means, and it certainly takes a bit of thinking to and looking up to try and find out what it means. But it, actually, propitiation is a very simple idea. It's a very big word for a simple idea. But basically, propitiation is is turning away the wrath of God to somewhere else. Um, An act of propitiation is to turn away the wrath of God. So you and I, we deserve the wrath of God. Judgment for our sins. And Christ comes as a propitiatory sacrifice. And in doing that, he turns away the wrath of God from you and puts it on his son. He is the propitiation. And so in this setting where God's wrath is revealed against unrighteousness, we badly need that propitiatory sacrifice, don't we? And in comes Jesus in order to bear the full weight of the wrath of God for us. And, and he does that by spilling his blood in death so that we do not have to bear that wrath. Please note, Jesus was not an unwilling servant of his father. But in the eternal counsels of God in eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, together with one mind, take this big step of sending the Son of God to take human nature and willingly to die for people who hated him. An amazing thing. So, propitiation. And then the second word is redemption. And so by this propitiation, propitiatory sacrifice... Redemption is possible. Now as a good Jew, Paul understood redemption well. He understood it from uh, the history of Israel. He understood that the people of Israel were redeemed from slavery into the promised land. A great, massive picture. It was a real event, but it was a a sense of a picture of something greater to come. And... uh, Paul therefore understands redemption, the grace of God at work, saving a people from slavery and bringing them to the promised land, from freedom to bondage. And uh, and that was a shadow of what was to come, because Jesus comes to lead a greater exodus, a greater redemption, uh, this time not from slavery to men or to a nation or something, but rather from uh, slavery uh, to sin, the power of sin, and to be freed and released into the kingdom of God. Now this work of Jesus, which consisted of his whole obedience to his father, the whole obedience of keeping the law uh, through his life, and the fulfillment of his uh, uh, calling as a suffering servant of the Lord uh, on the cross, uh, this work of Christ was essential to our redemption. Now, and it's essential actually to our justification. If you look ahead to chapter 5, verse 19, and uh, I can't spend too long on this, but um, because there's too much to say about it (laughs) if it just left itself. But verse 19 says this For as by one man's disobedience, so he's thinking about Adam there, 
By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Christ, the many will be made righteous. In other words, through this obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, in his life and his death on the cross, somehow we are made righteous. Um, Notice, he's not saying there, we are simply announced to be righteous, as though he just makes a declaration and says, well, now you're, you're, you're forgiven, you're free of your sins, and uh, you, can, you can go free. It is that, but it's more than that. There's, he is not only announcing that you're righteous, he is making you righteous. Now, how does that happen? That, that idea of being made righteous has a sense of being constituted in a particular way. It's much more substantial than simply being declared. Now, what do we mean by constituted or being made righteous? Well, let me just take you into, imagine with me a human court. And you're in the dock, you're being accused of something. And the judge is sitting in his chair at the front. And uh, he declares you not guilty. And therefore, there is no penalty. Now, think about it. There are only two ways that someone can be cleared of the penalty of the the charge that has been brought against you. Either you are actually found not to be guilty, you didn't do it, and so the acquittal is, is valid, and so you can go free because you haven't actually committed anything, any crime. Or... You see out your sentence in the court, uh, in, the, in, the, in the jail. You, know, you're, you have to see out your sentence. And at the end of your sentence, you're clear of any debt to the law. So that's the only way that you can be declared no longer uh, liable for, uh, for the guilt of your sin, or for your, of, of your crime. But here's the problem. If the... If the the judge just says, oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Just, uh, you're not guilty. I declare you not guilty. You may actually be guilty. And so the, the judge has acted unjustly. And, it's, and some people criticize the, the evangelical doctrine of justification because it, it creates this legal fiction that God is declaring something that's not true. But it's not a legal fiction. How is it not a legal fiction? Because somebody else has paid the price, borne the penalty for you. It's like you're in the dock and Jesus is in the dock with you. And Jesus says, I've paid the price. And so the judge says, you're acquitted. You're paid off. Because of Jesus. You see, Jesus has to be there with you to constitute you as righteous. Not just declare you righteous, but to constitute and make you righteous. And so you're actually righteous in God's sight. That's the doctrine of imputation. The imputation of Christ's righteousness to you. He reckons his goodness, his righteousness, his purity, uh, all these things. He reckons these things to you. It's put into your account. And so you, you're free. 
That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Your constituted righteousness. It amazes me that there are so many people who go to church who have no idea what it is that Jesus has done for his people. They think he's just a moral example of suffering in love. Which, of course, it is, but it's so much more than that. He actually affects something. He does something in his death on the cross. He actually deals with your sin. This is the amazing thing. You see, and the trouble is, with, in a church that forgets all of this and just focuses on the moral preaching, preaching and uh, precepts of the Christian church, you end up with a kind of Christless Christianity, a, a Christianity that simply has Christ as a figurehead, distant figurehead, as a moral example. But it doesn't believe that Jesus actually did anything for you. So the question is how, for you and I this morning is how central is Christ to you? It's only through Christ that you can be counted as righteous or justified. And so the righteousness of God comes to us by the grace, grace alone as a gift. And through Christ and his sacrificial death um, alone as a, as a gift. But here's the third thing. It's finally comes to us. How does it actually come to us in our experience? Through faith. Through faith. Look at verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Or verse 25. God put forward his propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Or verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Has that death 2,000 years ago become relevant to us? Our hearts are opened up to the fact that his death was for me and that now as I entrust my life to Jesus Christ, I can receive from him uh, this righteousness from God, this justification from God. So faith. It's an easy word, isn't it? Um, Many people misunderstand what it is. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago, I think. But often people will use it in a vague sense of a positive disposition towards God. But true saving faith has a different character altogether. Uh, William Guthrie, one of the the seminal books in my young Christian life was uh, William Guthrie's uh, Puritan paperback, The The Christian's Great Interest. And uh, in it he talks about faith. And he describes saving faith this way. He says, gird your loins for a lengthy, lengthy quote. Justifying faith is not to believe that I am elected. Just think about that. <laughs> it's not to believe that I am elected. Or to believe that God loves me. Or that Christ died for me. Or the like. I say, true justifying faith is not any of those aforesaid things. Neither is it simply believing of any sentence that is written or that can be thought upon. For then, it would be simply an act of, of the understanding. But true justifying faith, which we now seek after, is chiefly and principally an act or work of the heart or the will on Christ. This acting of the heart on Christ is not so difficult a thing as conceived. 
if men have but an appetite, they have it. For they are blessed that hunger after righteousness, one of the Beatitudes. See what he's saying? Justifying faith is not simply a vague positive disposition towards Jesus. It's not even simply believing uh, the words of the Bible to be true. True saving faith has a driving hunger. It comes with a, a driving hunger to be with Christ. That's what faith looks like and feels like. A driving hunger. You feel hungry for him. And when you're hungry, it changes everything, doesn't it? It changes how you do things. It sets your priorities for you. I've got to have some food. I've got to eat something before I do anything else. Well, it's the same with faith in Jesus Christ. There comes points in your life where you've got to say, I want Jesus Christ more than anything else. I want him. And that's when you know you have saving faith. Are you hungry? Do you have that hungry, justifying faith? In Christ, by grace. It's a gift of God, you see. And it connects you with Christ and his saving work. Through which you may receive a righteousness, not your own. Where God declares you righteous or justified. He is in you, with you, in the dock. And therefore you are acquitted of your liability for all your past and present and future sins. Because Jesus has paid the cost. And won your freedom. Justification by faith. The doctrine by which the church stands or falls. The doctrine by which you or I fall eternally. Are you justified before God today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful teaching of how someone can be made right with God, even though we're sinners. And how essential your son Jesus Christ is to that. We pray you'd help us to see him and to trust in him, to have that hunger in our own souls for Jesus Christ. Lord, it's a gift and we cry out for it, how we need it, in Jesus' name. Amen.